Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as blacks and African-Americans. Our guests are David Grubin and Tamir Lanier. David Grubin is a producer-director who has made the documentary Free Renty, Lanier vs. Harvard. Tamir Lanier is the plaintiff in the Lanier vs. Harvard court case. Free Renty tells the story of her efforts to force Harvard University to surrender possession of a daguerreotype of her great-great-great-grandfather, an enslaved man named Renty. Daguerreotypes are early photographs produced on silver or silver-covered copper plates. The daguerreotype was commissioned in 1850 by a Harvard professor named Louis Agassiz. He wanted to use it as part of his research to, quote, prove the superiority of the white race. The film focuses on Lanier and tracks her lawsuit against Harvard. I'm joined by 12 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, hi, I'm Bill Collins. I'm in Aiken, South Carolina. Harvard 1963, Navy 20 years, driving ships around the oceans, nuclear engineer. Went to work for Westinghouse after retired, building plants to burn municipal garbage and generate power, which was fun but unprofitable. So I ended up at the Savannah River site, cleaning up radioactive waste from the Cold War production of plutonium and tritium for nuclear weapons. And then I'm retired altogether from that, but still living in Aiken with my wife. Aiken is right near the Savannah River site. All righty. Uh, Hamp. Hampton Howell. Uh, I live in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm originally from New York, and I've stayed in Boston for 10 years after Harvard, 63. <laughs> Uh, and I've evolved from being a preppy jock to to, to being an, an uh, alienated intellectual, <laughs> semi-intellectual. <laughs> semi oh, hi, John Woodford in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where I have been a journalist for the University of Michigan and also for various other outfits, including uh, Muhammad Speaks newspaper and New York. Uh, all in Briscoe, I was born in Mass General, but uh, grew up in Northwestern Connecticut now live in California. I think I'm the only California representative here at the moment. Um, maybe not. Uh, anyway, uh, my wife and I have a uh, firm which uh, consults with nonprofits in fundraising. Okay, Peter. I'm a, an editor and a writer in New Hampshire. And after Harvard, I worked with uh, SNCC in Georgia for two and a half years. Okay, Marcy. I'm in, I'm in New York City working to counter disinformation and the rewriting of history about major re, resource allocation battles, especially uh, the battle to reallocate billions of dollars in public funds from the Westway Highway and Hudson River Development Project into mass transit. Mm. Okay. Ron, Ronnie. Calling in from Newton, Massachusetts, um, graduated with most of these aging people I see on my screen. Um, in 1963, a week later, I was working at WGBH and 
in some form or other, I've been in TV or film or experimental film or video ever since, uh, still continuing. Okay, Nick. Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, <clears throat> member of class of 1963, um, business school, then India for a couple of years. And along the way, um, as, a, as a child, uh, 14 years old, 15 years old, um, I found myself in the Southwest in the, uh, around Gallup, New Mexico, Four Corners, uh, in a, a camp, basically. Um, and we had two Navajo boys traveling with us for nine weeks each summer. I was interested in rocks. A lot of other people with me were interested in bugs, snakes, um, Native Americans and all that. We all did digging uh, back then of midden heaps, knowing that anything we found in that midden heap uh, belonged to a Navajo, a Hopi, a Zuni tribe. So the provenance of things that we found <clears throat> was pretty straightforward. Uh, I've always been interested in the Southwest since then, and the provenance of uh, Native American items, uh, including photographs. So I'll look forward to hearing this discussion. Um, one final thing was along the way, I worked with a, a number of small businesses, one of which was a um, <clears throat> printing company, silkscreen printing company. We were dealing with artwork that came to us uh, in the form of photographs. And the provenance of the photographs, the ownership of the, of the photographs, was a hotly contested area. And it depended upon how much work had been done on the photograph, who owned the original, or did anybody own the original? So again, uh, this is gonna be a very interesting discussion. Okay, Mason. Uh, I'm Mason Morfitt. I live in Freeport, Maine, which is about 99.9% .9 white. Uh, I am in the, I worked for about 33 years for the Nature Conservancy doing land conservation. More recently, I'm involved in local politics dealing with climate change, and I'm also uh, deaccessioning my toys as I grow older. I sold both of my boats last year, and yesterday <laughs> I sold two of my three shotguns, so uh, I'm getting down to the bare bones. <laughs> Good. Spencer. Hi. I'm laughing at that last line. Uh, yes, I'm Spencer, and I'm living in hot and sunny Florida. Uh, and uh, I'm a class of 61. Uh, I am uh, economic and black economic development, but now in the last uh, uh, four, 30 years, sustainable development. Uh, and uh, one, I'm looking forward to hearing from your, I can't wait to hear your story. We have something in common and that uh, we have a long New England ancestry and you might know about the cuffs, cuffies. <laughs> I'm a descendant of the Cuffies, and uh, so I look forward to uh, to uh, hearing uh, that. I, I, I really like your story. Okay, and welcome to uh, David Grubin and uh, <clears throat> Tammy Lanier. Thank you for coming, and uh, tell us about the story. Uh, David, you go first. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't see the Brooklyn Film Festival, and I know that they wanted us to talk about that. I'm, I'm curious to find out how that went as well. Yeah, well, the thing that, that I find at all these festivals is that people are really engaged by the issues and the story. 
often you you make a film, you go to a festival, people want to know how much film you shot and what kind of camera you use and a lot of technical stuff. In this film, which is great, people just go right to the issues and they find Tammy very compelling and her her uh, her journey very compelling, and they just want to know about that. And uh, that's what I find the most exciting about the the uh, what what this film has done. So tell us a little about that journey, Tammy. Well, um, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a very long and and stubborn and persistent story um, that really starts with my ancestors and my oral history. And that that oral history has been passed from generation to generation uh, to my mother uh, and then to me, my brothers and sisters and my children. And my mom, uh, you know, one of the things that I like to point out when I share this story is that I'm not that many generations removed from slavery. Uh, my mom grew up in the household with her formerly enslaved ancestors. Um, there are five generations of men in my family who are named after the man in that image in the daguerreotype who are named Renty. And my mom's grandfather was also Renty. He was also born a slave. He, he lived for many years as a slave. He migrated from um, Charleston, South Carolina to Mont a small community called Mount Meigs, Montgomery, Alabama. But the one thing that he never lost sight of is who he was and where he came from in the oral history. He shared that with my mom. He shared that with his children. And my mom shared it with me. Um, it was important for my mom that we write these, these, these oral history and these, the, you know, the, the information that we had down. And um, that was something my mom always talked about, but later in life when she became ill, it became increasingly important to her. Um, she would say, you know, when she was in the nursing home, um, when she was in the hospital, when she was in critical care, she would always start this conversation with, you know, I want you to write down our ancestry to document this and do the family genealogical tree. And um, throughout my childhood and my children's childhood, um, the one thing that we, that we knew for certain is that when my mom talked about these stories, it, it was something that comforted her. It was something she enjoyed doing. And in the latter part of her life, it was something that gave her almost a perfect peace. When she would talk about it, it would be just this peace would come over her. And so what we started doing, particularly in the bad times and the difficult times where my mom is saying, my kids would come into the room and say, Grandma, tell us that story about Papa Renti. And you, her whole demeanor would change. Her whole state of mind would change. And she would just get into this comfort of a storytelling mode. And she would just uh, sit back and <laughs> she would start with the black African and that's what she referred to Papa Rinty. They called him the black African. He would tell those stories to my children. And uh, again, as I said earlier, in the latter part of her life, um, it almost distressed her to the point where she was saying, I want you to always remember these things and never forget these things and write these things down. And after she passed, um, 
I felt guilt and remorse because we, I really didn't have a plan or an intention to write this genealogy down and to do the research. I didn't know how. We only did that to comfort my mom in those trying moments. And so when she was gone, I was like, you promised you would do this. And so uh, I, I felt obligated to do the work, though I didn't know how. And um, one day I was out walking and, you know, certain days it would bother me more than others that, you know, you got to get started on this. You got to do this. You got to find a way to make this happen. You know, you've never broken a prom to, promise to your mom and you can't do it now that she's gone. And uh, on the way, I was out walking for lunch and I stopped into a small community ice cream shop uh, here in downtown Norwich. And I would visit the shop often. I would pick up a salad. It's an ice cream shop, but they had great fresh fruit and, and, and produce and made wonderful salad. So I um, would stop in and pick up a salad on my way back to work. And that day I shared with the owner, his name was Rich Morrison. I, I said, did I tell you that my mom passed? And he said, no. And then I started, you know, to lament and talk about the fact that I had made this promise to do the genealogical research and I don't know how to do it. And to, to kind of frame this conversation, you have to keep in mind we're talking 2010 and kind of the onset of the internet and access to information before this uh, you know, 2010 and around this time, you had to do it manually. You had to go to the archives. You had to travel and you had to do the research. And the internet was just becoming available and accessible. And um, so Rich, who was, I believe, and I never really asked, uh, but he was clearly a, a, a senior citizen, I thought maybe in his late 70s. Um, but I remember him saying, you know, I love to do that kind of work, write down what you know, and I'll do the research for you. And I remembered looking at him because, again, at this time, uh, most seniors didn't even care to turn a, a computer on, let alone navigating on the Internet. It was just something they didn't do. And so I went back to the shop. It was several weeks later. But the image of him is seared in my brain because when I walked in the door, I saw him standing over the register with his arms in the air, like, where have you been? I found your paparinti on the internet. And I remember saying in my head, like, yeah, right. What is my paparinti doing on the internet? I, you, know, you know, what would my ancestor be doing on the internet? So, I, and, and, and I'm thinking at this time that what is rich God? What has he done? Um, I, I go to work, I, I, I finish the day, I go home. And later that evening, I thought, let me look at what Rich has put together. And I, I remember sitting down at my desk at my computer and opening the first attachment, which was about Louis Agassiz. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't the, the, the kind of celebratory stories that Harvard told. It was about his scientific racism it was about um, eugenics. It was about all the dark and sick and twisted things associated with white supremacy. And it was all linking Harvard and Louis Agassiz to this ugly scientific race, racism or race science. And I'm like, wow, this is really dark stuff. And I'm like, so, and, and I remember thinking, what has Rich sent me? <laughs> what is he doing? 
And, uh, and then the next attachment I opened was um, the image of my Papa Renty. And uh, I remember really just being frozen in time for that moment because when I opened it, we immediately made like eye contact. And I remember staring at him and feeling like he was staring back at me. I remember thinking, this is the man that I have heard so much about for all of my life, for all of my children's life. And now here I am sitting looking at him. Well, how did uh, Harvard get in, into uh, the journey? Tell us about that. Well, um, so I'm doing, when I, I see Papa Renti, I hear this story um, in the documents that David um, sent me. Um, but then I knew, um, I knew, I knew in my heart of hearts that this was my Papa Renti. So I had to gather more, uh, you know, documents to support my, 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 my assumption that this man was my grandfather. So I'm working and I'm putting more documents together and building a strong case to show that, you know, there is a direct lineage and not just, you know, in terms of census, there's so much information that was linking to this man. So ultimately I started, I started calling Harvard University. At the time, it was the W.E.B. Du Bois Center. Um, and I was reaching out saying, you know, because now Harvard is having, you know, symposiums, they're publishing books, and they're talking about this man, and they're saying, we know nothing about him. And, you know, we know nothing about these enslaved people who were captured in the daguerreotypes. And I'm calling and saying, hey, I know who he is. He has a rich oral history. He's my grandfather. And I know, you know, who he is, who he was as a person and the great things he did. There's an amazing story here. And I get no response. I send emails. I'm calling. I'm emailing him. Henry Gates' office. I'm talking with his receptionist or his assistant. I'm calling history departments, history teachers, and emailing. And all at the same time, the story's starting to get out. Um, you know, a couple of the local newspapers had written stories about it, and they would reach out to Harvard and they would say, there's no way that she can prove that she's a direct descendant of this man. Um, they would say things like she's giving us nothing to show that she's Rinty's, you know, descendant. And, and all of that wasn't true. And uh, I had um, visited the daguerreotypes. My daughter and I went. Um, and when I went, I brought all of the documents, the census and the birth records and different things. And I gave them a copy. Um, but they were just completely not interested. They wanted nothing to do with the story. And for the rest of the world was just seemingly amazed and interested. I'm starting to hear from many people. And as the story is getting out more and more, I'm hearing from people in other countries. Um, and every time we approached Harvard, it was this huge disconnect and uh, disinterest. And um, so what I continue to do is just to build upon the research because they said, there's no way I can prove it. So I saw that as a challenge. And, um, and, 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 and every time I would get to a place and, and what I found and what sadly was there were only certain times that you can talk about issues like slavery, like 
in February. So I would kind of gear up every February to reach out to people and say, hey, I have this amazing story about this man that the world wants to know who he is and and, and I have the details. Um, and so I, once a year in February, I could share what I've done. And what started happening is I was hearing from reporters who were saying, we've talked to Harvard and Harvard is saying, there's no way to substantiate anything you're saying. I have an email from uh, the Crimson editor who said to me in writing, <laughs> and I say that, um, you know, they invited me to come to um, Harvard. I spent the day there doing multiple interviews and they did a video diary. They did, you know, an interview. We spent, they were all very excited. And then a couple of weeks later, the Crimson reached out and said, they apologize, but said, because of the concerns raised by the Peabody, we're not able to run your story. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, my God. But I was I was grateful because he put it in writing and he put it framed it in a way where I knew that they intentionally killed the story. And I was hearing some of the similar things from other reporters. And um, I remember there was an event at our state capitol here in Connecticut. I had been following a story about an enslaved man, Fortune, who was curated in a Waterbury, Connecticut museum. And a group of NAACP students were petitioning the museum to, to give Mr. Fortune the dignity of a burial so that he could rest in peace. And ultimately, the students went out and there was this amazing ceremony at the Capitol for him. And, you know, I was following stories and, and wherever there was something about slavery or something that could help me put my story together, I went no matter where it was. And I went to that event and I was sitting next to a woman and I didn't know her. Um, I never met her before. And um, we, we started talking about my paparinti. And I started telling her that, you know, about Harvard's resistance to the story and how Harvard, every time a reporter would reach out, Harvard would shut the story down by implying that I have no credibility. And people were reluctant to report out the story. And so at the ceremony, there was the casket, which had the remains of the enslaved man fortune. And so this person, and she turned out to be a university professor at the University of Pennsylvania, I believe. And she said, she grabbed me by the hand and she said, come, let's go to the casket where Mr. Fortune lay and pray. And so I get up and I follow her and we're standing there. And I remember putting my hand on the casket and praying for a breakthrough that someone will be um, courageous enough to print the story, irregardless of Harvard's criticism or attempts to kill the story. And so a reporter with the Hartford Current, which is one of the larger newspapers here in the state of Connecticut, saw us praying and he captured that picture and he put it in the front page of the Hartford Current. But he also came up to us and he said, if you don't mind my asking, could you tell me what you were praying about? And so I told them that I was praying for a breakthrough that someone, I had no idea that a reporter was even there or that the Hartford Current was there because it was a large event and we had stolen away to this secluded place where no one was at. 
And so that picture ended up on the front page of the Hartford Current. And then Rich Hartford, who was the reporter, and Nancy Shuffler and Ann Farrow then got engaged in this story. And the Hartford Current did a huge feature story that um, was picked up by the Associated Press and it just went viral. So I was praying for the breakthrough and there it was. And so, but that came, became kind of a, a, a subsequent part of the story. But it, it, you know, like I can talk about how, I don't know how to frame it, but I often sit back and marvel at how I had access to information that I don't know, you know, just seemingly impossible to find how I had access to people, which, you know, in my mind, seemingly impossible, you know, when I think about, you know, my attorney and even Mike introducing David to this story, um, attorney Bryn Crump getting involved. I just believe when we talk about Providence, it's just like, this is a divine purpose-driven story. And, 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 and I believe that my ancestors are orchestrating it for a larger purpose and call me crazy, but that's what I think. It's well, just, there's so much that has happened that it defies explanation. Well, how like, did you the, legally get tied up with Harvard? How did that, the, the court? Well, so Harvard is stringing me along and jerking me around and saying, you know, oh, well, keep us posted on your research and we'll continue to keep you posted on things we're doing. And then I hear from social media, you know, did you know Harvard's having another conference on the slave daguerreotypes? No. Um, I'm hearing from people, uh, you know, there's so many people. Oh, now the story is out. And people will tag me with information on social media, making me aware and keeping me informed. And so um, I reached out. I learned about this conference in 2017. But at this point, I felt like I had information that definitively linked me. I'm certain at this point I'm um, I'm, I'm Rinty's granddaughter. I had some of the best genealogists in the world, one who did Barack Obama's genealogy and later, um, not at this time, but later the woman who did Michelle Obama's genealogy, who all say that I mean far exceed any um, uh, legal claim to kinship to this man, that the documentations are, uh, you know, way beyond the, the, the required level of proof that I need. Um, and so this conference is being held. So I reach out to Drew Faust and I'm like, Drew, <laughs> I didn't say that, but I sent her a letter and I said, you promised to keep me informed of the activities with the daguerreotypes. And I'm hearing you're having this big conference about the daguerreotypes and I want to go. And so then she has her secretary call me and she's like, well, you know, the conference is full and it's mm -hmm. over. Can't go. And I said, well, I'm not accepting that. And I said, uh, you know, this was a promise made by Drew Faust, and I'm holding her to that. I want to go to that conference. So after a lot of tug of war, they gave me two tickets. And so my daughter and I went and the conference was billed as the universities and their ties to slavery and this whole question of reparations, Tanahasi Coates was going to be the keynote and they were going to talk. So I'm thinking, okay, here we go. Now they're going to start telling my paparenti story and, you know, all of this. And I get there and I, I, and it's just, it's, I, I get frustrated even thinking about it. My daughter and I walk in 
the the Radcliffe, which is Lewis Eckersley's like uh, uh, auditorium named after his wife. So I'm like, okay, they're still celebrating Eckersley's and not acknowledging his ties to an ugly racism. So we walk into the auditorium. And then we're both just stopped in our tracks because when we get in to the auditorium, we see this jumbotron size image of Papa Renti. It had to be at least maybe 12 feet high. I'm not sure. It, it, it filled the entire auditorium. I mean, it was it was the backdrop of everything. You could not, you could not, you I felt like I could not rest because it felt like. You know, you look at his image and you see this kind of defiance, but it seemed to be tenfold that day. He felt extra angry. He he looked, you know, just furious. And I remember we both walked in and we we were stopped in our tracks. And so my daughter said to me, she said, Mom, Papa Renty looks mad. <laughs> and I said, as he should be, because, you know, here you are exploiting him again. And so we find a seat in the back of the room and we're sitting there and they open. And so I'm waiting for Harvard to do the Mia Copa and to fall on the sword and talk about all their ties to slavery and tell this ugly history and just come clean. And that didn't happen. They opened with the same falsehoods, the same rhetoric that they had been spewing for years. We know nothing about this man. This was, and, and she knew we were sitting there. And they're saying we have no information about him. They referred to him as invisible. Um, and it was just so hurtful because we went there with such expectations. And we were, I just felt like, you know, the, the, there was, when you walk into the Ratcliffe, that was the gut punch. And then you come into the auditorium and then you get the blow to the jaw. And then just to sit there, we were just sick over the whole thing. And so my daughter was just disengaged after that. So she started, Harvard had a, a, a hashtag where you can tweet your comments and they streamlined this internationally. People all over the world were watching. And you can tweet your comments to this <laughs> union slavery hashtag. So my daughter starts sharing our story and she starts tweeting out pictures of us visiting uh, Dr. Taylor. And she starts tweeting out news articles about our story. And then it was almost as if she, she jokingly says we had we hijacked their hashtag um, mm. because people started responding to us and and then, you know, at the intermission, uh, we were already decided we would leave because there was no owning anything by Harvard. In fact, I felt that there was finger pointing at other universities for what they had failed to do. And I'm like, what the heck? And so we're getting ready to leave. And then people start coming up to us saying, hey, are you the one on Twitter who's Rinty's granddaughter? And I, I said, yes. Um, we talked to, there were like seven or eight people. And there was one gentleman who was a Harvard alum and he was involved with Harvard in some capacity, but I know he was so upset at the way we were treated at the conference. He wrote them a letter. He wrote them a scathing letter and he CC'd me on it. And of course I kept it because Harvard claims they didn't know any of this. Mm -hmm. um, but he really took them to task for the way that we were treated at the conference. And, and that the fact that, 
this, you know, the world wants to know who Rinty is. And, and here are people who have this story. Why aren't you embracing it? And he said, I strongly encourage you to reach out to Miss Lanier and, and get her story. And I never heard anything from any of them. And, and so at that point, I knew that Harvard was not negotiating in good faith. They weren't playing fair and they were just placating me. And, and so um, there was also at this time, there was a news article uh, about Carrie Mae Weems, who was, I think at the time, she may have been in New York at that time, but she was an artist who traveled to the Peabody to visit with the daguerreotypes and she somehow managed to get a copy. She took a photo of the daguerreotypes and then went back to New York and had an exhibit. Harvard was furious. They threatened to sue her. <laughs> and so, and you know, just before court, they fold, but you know, they threatened to sue her. But the reality is, and I heard one gentleman talk about providence and, and documents and things. Harvard doesn't have good title to these daguerreotypes. For years, they were claiming copyright. The daguerreotypes are what, uh, almost 200 years old now. So Harvard, when you ask for permission, and if you dare to use it in any way in which they allow you or afford you access, they, they, they tell you, we're going to sue you. Um, and so, but they had no right, and they knew that. Um, and so they threatened to sue carrying me means, but I think they came to the realization, we can't sue it for copyright because copyright has expired. Um, and what we learned, and actually from the Harvard students, um, this whole concept about providence and, and documents to show that you are the good faith owner, that you have a paper trail that says that these documents were gifted to you properly and you're the rightful owner of it. Harvard has none of that. They have no title whatsoever to the images. Let me and ask a question. Let me, uh, when, when was this image taken? Mm, yes. 1850. 1850. And who took it? Yeah. Who um, uh, uh, a photographer in Columbia, South Carolina, his name is J.T. Zealy. Mm -hmm. And then how did it get up to Agassiz? Well, what happened was, and this is the other history, the historical side of the case, which my attorney, Mike Koskoff, was amazing in, in unearthing and telling this story. Um, when we go back to the 1850s and recognizing that the question of the day at that point was the question of slavery or emancipation and how the country was divided on these issues, um, I mentioned Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster visited the Taylor Plantation in Columbia, South Carolina. Daniel Webster traveled from Boston to South Carolina to see my masters. He was an abolitionist at the time. And he, after his trip to South Carolina, he spoke on the Senate floor saying that I will never speak against slavery again. So there was a concerted effort. The North was heavily invested in slavery because of cotton. Um, and in our complaint, my attorney writes about cotton was the, the thread that held the union together. The South was equally invested in, and, and we all know about the South. Little is known about the North. These stories are just being told. But there was collusion between Daniel Webster and Calhoun 
and the slave owners, and they were all Harvard and the, um, some of the Industrial Revolution people were all heavily invested. And there was the need for this scientific propaganda to disseminate throughout the country that says, you know, firstly, Black people are inferior. Black people are a subspecies. They're not human. They don't deserve the protections that we enjoy as white people. So this propaganda was used to promote, and, and, and um, um, Agassiz has traveled the South speaking about white supremacy and scientific racism and using the images they don't know if they were used, but he was having these discussions about the, the scientific justification for slavery. And so one of the things that this complaint exposes is that collusion between the North and South, or particularly Boston and South Carolina, on promoting slavery and creating this racist propaganda. Um, Agassiz met with Abraham Lincoln. And then in his next speech, the Douglas debate, we hear him espouring these, these racist concepts. He was regurgitating these stories, uh, this, this racist concepts. And, and, and so there's a whole part of the story that, that shows the North's complicity in slavery, and particularly Harvard, who was the academic and scientific giant at that time, using their, 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 their scientific and pro political prowess to promote slavery. And so we start when we're, 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 we're going back and retelling the story and piecing these things together. Um, you know, we're starting to say there's more here than just the, the, the struggle over the, the daguerreotypes. But again, Boston and the North's complicity with slavery. And that part has never been told because, again, Daniel Webster is a man who would have been president if he had taken on the role of vice president. Uh, I think it was, and I, 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 that part of the history, I'm not so sure with, but you know, it's, it's amazing the, the, the history that's not told. And these are things that people aren't aware of. And, and, you know, there were a couple of times where um, my attorney would sit and talk about the collusion of these, 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 um, these socialites in, in, in Cambridge and in Boston, while they're purporting to be, you know, abolitionists publicly. Can I interrupt one more time? Just to sure. say that uh, the Fugitive Slave Law passed by the U.S. Congress was yes. passed in 1850. Yes. So that's the environment that this is happening. Yes. And yeah. also when other countries were coming in the debate over whether they would come, other states were coming to the union, whether they would come in as free states or slave states. It was a political football. It was, it was, you know, it, it was the most, well, I can't say the most because look at where we are today, but one of the most divisive times in the history of our country. And it was all along the racial lines about slavery and, mm -hmm. and, and whether to promote to continue to promote slavery or abolish it. And what when you got to court, what happened with Harvard in court? What was their position? Well, this is, we, we decided to sue after we, I actually, my attorney had me write a letter, which was really quite genius because it was something that really turned the, the legal questions and the understanding of the case 
he had me write a letter saying, you know, I recognize that you're no longer uh, or that I can't trust you to work with me in good faith. I'm asking you to surrender the daguerreotypes to me. And so I wrote that letter to Harvard. And uh, I think they took about a month to respond where they didn't respond. They were saying I had I had said specific things. And they were talking about the weather. I don't know. They were talking about nothing related to what I had put in the letter. And that we will continue to take care of the daguerreotypes and we will whatever, but just a denial. So what that did was there was a, uh, a, a legal concept called replevin. And strangely enough, it was used by slaveholders in the 1850s to recover their slaves after the Fugitive Slave Act. And so... So basically, my attorney talks about, you know, the legal argument that we're going to take this law that was used to return slaves mm. to the property owner, uh, the slaveholder, and reverse that. And now we're asking the slaveholders to return property to me. So we thought that there was irony in it. And so our argument was simple. And we would, you know, when you think about the things all falling into place, at, in 1874 or three the state of Massachusetts abolished slavery and not only abolished slavery, but said that pe black people at that time had a right to seek legal re redress and a right to own property. That was just, it was because it made what Harvard did illegal. And so our argument is certainly the daguerreotypes were plundered property. They're the vestiges of slavery. Um, it's uh, the, the, the badges of slavery that Harvard um, took people, forced them under duress to strip nude and pose for these images. And that in doing that, that was a crime. They were essentially kidnapped and forced to roll and their property from them. So, did Har and, so Harvard, I, I'm not clear on, Harvard was the one who sent a photographer to they that? Commissioned, they commissioned the daguerreotype. Photographer was working for them. The Sagarcees did. Harvard as, what the court referred to Harvard is the employer of the wrongdoer or the joint tort okay. visa. <laughs> that's how that's how the Supreme Court referred to Harvard. So they were the employer of the wrongdoer of the joint tort visa. And looking, they looking from another angle, at what point did David Grubin and the filmmaking get involved? Were they involved at this point or they, yeah, they had been long involved by this point. I want to say 2000, late 16, early 17, or late 17, early 18. I came in six months before the lawsuit was filed. So I was able to watch as they prepared the case and as they thought it all through. And so I was able to, to be there the day of the launch. Yeah. So... so um, just to continue on these two tracks, because it would be nice to see how there was an interaction between the legal case and the filmmaking. Um, David, can you say something about what drew you to this as a filmmaker and when, as we go on in the narrative? So as, as, as Tanny uh, suggested, Mike Koskoff is my cousin, and, or was my cousin. And um, he called me and he told me about the case. And I, I knew that this case was going to be interesting. I, I didn't know how interesting. And as you know, a documentary, you don't know what's going to happen. Um, 
but I, I knew it was going to raise all kinds of issues. Uh, I looked at the daguerreotype, and that daguerreotype is so powerful. It, it draws you draws you right in. And I said to Mike, look, everything is in place. I got to meet Tammy. And uh, so I met Tammy. And you, when you meet Tammy, you know this is a determined woman with integrity. She's going to be, she's going to do this thing. And so I got on board. And three years later, I finished the film. Tamara, how, uh, who's on your team um, from the point of view of uh, non-filmmakers uh, and non-lawyers? Um, have you uh, developed a relationship with other uh, members of your family? Yes, my family um, is small. I have the family that I know. I, I'm finding that I have a larger family and reaching out. Um, but it's really just my sister. My brother passed away about 12 years ago, and I have a cousin who lives in Brooklyn. Um, but when I talk about Team Rinty, it's, it's, it's an extended family, um, including Harvard students, a few Harvard, courageous Harvard professors, um, an extended team of attorneys who are working with both Attorney Trump and Attorney Kostoff, um, some of the members of my community. Um, so we have this, this and, and, you know, there are other people who have been following the case very closely. There are people from the Congo. There are people from Switzerland, Louis Agassiz's hometown, um, um, all over the world. So there is an extended family, and we call them Team Renty. Right. But, but, but uh, Tammy, at this point, what is Harvard's position? Why don't they want to give it back? I mean, in simple terms. I mean, what are they saying? These daguerreotypes are believed to be the first documented um, images of enslaved people where they're named, um, not only where they're named, but where it's also identified as to who their enslaver is and where they came from, what part of Africa. So these, they're priceless. Um, they're, they're, they're priceless. So that's the first reason why Harvard is holding on to them. And secondly, I believe it, it speaks to the larger question. Um, and and I, I think the Harvard student framed it best when he said Harvard archives bear strange fruits. Um, mm. There are a lot of contemptuous, I, illegal um, activity going on at the Peabody in terms of what they're curating, how they're they say they're the ethical stewards of this cultural property, but what we're finding are there are abuses uh, that would shock your average person to know what's going on at that Peabody. Um, and so I, I just think that they're just still prepared to, 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 to fix this in a way where they say face. And, um, you know, so I think that there, I, and, and to be honest, I'm only speculating, but even at that, I don't understand their rationale, you know, because so many say, so many people ask, why don't they just simply give you the daguerreotypes? Right, right. You know, to, to fight over them is You'll really- You want to lose out on the money. Yeah, that's true. That's they, 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 <laughs> you know, it's at a loss to them. <laughs> Here's the thing, property, there are property, property. million artifacts in the Harvard Yeah, museum. once you, you get those- imagine how many were plundered and taken illegally. Exactly. They're, and Harvard's position property. on all this is very simple. Bacow said it, the law is on our side. In other words, they have a very narrow 
legal interpretation. Who owns a picture? The photographer. When it went to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, those guys, those judges asked the right questions. Oh, the photographer owns the picture. What if the rapist takes a picture of his victim? Does he own it? What about a child pornographer? So it's not settled law. What's odd is that the Massachusetts Supreme Court has been out now without a verdict for seven months. I mean, it's, it's not usual. So there's something we don't understand. So they, if they get, if she gets this back, then there are going to be other plaintiffs. Exactly. And they don't want to see that. Exactly. The Elgin, the Elgin marbles. Like the Elgin marbles. Sure. The Elgin marbles and thousands and thousands and thousands of artifacts that were taken from one country. Right. I mean, the laws of property are very one-sided because the people who have property write the laws. And so <laughs> it's a, it, this is one instance, and it's a great instance that makes for great storytelling, but it is one instance among countless incidents that having to do with property and ownership. And so, that's the you know, that's the fear. And, it, you know, these, this is plundered property. But for Harvard to defend and to fight for these images, it's really making that colonizer argument. And they look absolutely ridiculous doing it. And, you know, they, they, they say that we, we acknowledge slavery was abhorrent and, you know, the, the evils of slavery. And then you're making a colonizer argument to defend your retaining plundered property. We, we, Move. We've evolved where, you know, we have to recognize and right these wrongs. Tammy's case is really the tip of the spear, which has forced Harvard into this public relations gesture. Right. Um, right. Uh, the donation. If they were really going to do anything, they would return the daguerreotypes. Instead, they're going to study that there's $100 million, which is yeah. very vague. Uh, it's a very Harvard move. Deflection. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, they're charging $15 to go into the Peabody Museum. Was <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that right? <laughs> I, I actually paid to use those images when I made a film. Mm. Uh, Harvard was making a profit off of those images, and I have the licenses to show. Um, Soon as Tammy put her case forward and it went, uh, and they were being sued, they said, it's public domain is public domain. Anybody can you? No. Uh, they, it's just like now. They, they, Harvard is very adept at the public relations stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, some of us have been involved in their in divestment of fossil fuels. Ah. And it's exactly the same story. <laughs> and it all revolves around money. You know, you have money on one side and ethics and morality on the other side, and you know which way Harvard is going to go the way they did with apartheid in South Africa. They're going to go with the money until their arms are twisted and twisted and twisted, and they have to yield something. So they pledged to divest from fossil fuels. What is a pledge? Have they divested? <laughs> That's like the pledging of the hundred million dollars without any yeah. earmarks or specifics as yeah. to what they're mm -hmm. going to do. But, yeah. I mean, David and, and Tammy, how do you tell us about what do the tea leaves tell you about the future? I mean, what are you, you guys optimistic or what's your sense? 
I don't know if you've seen the, the arguments uh, at the Mass Supreme Judicial Court. If I judge just based on my takeaway from the line of questioning and the things that the judges were saying, mm -hmm. they referred to Harvard as the joint tort feeser, the employer, the wrongdoer. Those were all buzzwords for me because when I hear that, I hear indictment of Harvard. <laughs> they have found fault in you. And, 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 and so... Harvard is saying, well, they were originally saying, you know, again, as David mentioned, the photo belongs to the photographer, irregardless of how they acquired the image. And one of the Supreme Court justices reminded them that we're really not talking about photography because the daguerreotypes are a tangible piece of property um, that can't be replicated. Um, and, and so she kind of redirected him and that kind of cut his legs out from under him, as well as the judges who were saying, you know, that is not settled law. You know, you cannot um, kidnap someone and take nude photos of them and claim ownership of them. So the judges were really clear. Hmm. But the other thing that they also talked about was um, an interpleader action. And I, I, I'm thinking that, you know, my expectation is there's going to be a decision that kind of splits the baby, so to speak. I think the judges are going to come back because they've taken so long. They were so affirmative in their deliberations. I mean, on the bench where I thought that they could have even ruled from the bench. They were just saying, you can't do this, Harvard. Um, but I know they recognize the importance of it. And one of Harvard's arguments was, you know, your honors have to consider the implications of your decision. If you give this back to Tim, he was saying like, you're opening the Pandora's box that we're talking about, which I'm sure was um, a message that Harvard, uh, the, the, the justices are weighing, you know, the consequence of their decision. And that's why I think that they're taking extra long and that th what they write will be a, a living document for, for, for years to come because they're going to have to justify allowing a wrongdoer to go on and be unjustly enriched by the proceeds of their crime or they're going to have to give this back to me. <laughs> what kind and, of team is Ben Crump putting together? Ben Crump has put together teams in mainly a variety of, you know, police killings, but other cases too, Flint, Michigan, water. So is he putting a team together that's- He has a team- Property law? He has, a, I know when we were at the Supreme Court, uh, this is where I met them all for the first time. There's about 10 attorneys from Florida and people that he works with. Uh -huh. Of course, with the Costco team, they have an equal amount of attorneys uh, that are all working on this. And I'm just fortunate because here, Humble me with nothing, have all of these important people fighting on my behalf. Um, but there is a, 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 an amazing legal team. I call them my dream team. And um, I, I, I believe if they follow the law and adhere to the law, we will prevail. I also know that something is imminent because I'm hearing from people who say that the court recesses for the summer and then it, um, reconvenes again in the fall, like from July to September, October. So that would suggest that they have to decide this case. 
in the next week or so. You, um, you know, that, you know, what I think could happen is if they decide in favor of Tammy, Harvard will cave and will want to negotiate because they don't want the lawyers, especially Ben Crump, in front of a jury. Right, right. So yeah. I think then they're going to go and they're going to negotiate. And they're going to say, oh, Tammy, um, won't you let me? Do, you know, in other words, it's Tammy. Her position has always been that she wants to decide what to do with these daguerreotypes. Mm-hmm. They want to decide themselves. They want to say, well, look, now we'll be nice and, and uh, we will whatever. So there'll be some negotiation because I don't think they want to get a trial going. What's the bottom Thank line you. for you, Tammy? I want the daguerreotypes back. I want control of the daguerreotypes. <laughs> Me and my children have talked about their final resting place, and it would be fitting for it to be like a homecoming. It's like returning them to a place in South Carolina or Alabama where our families originated and that kind of celebration. Those are the kinds of things that I think about. Um but there are so many other. The other thing is, you know, I am not unmindful of the fact that, you know, the value of these daguerreotypes and if I get them, I cannot own them because everyone in the world who can make any ties to me can sue me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, you know, they have to be donated to a place like where they're on, you know, public display and accessible. And, you know, and that's the other issue that comes up about the display of them and showing these these horrific images mm-hmm. and and whether that is the moral thing to do or the ethical thing to do in light of how graphically inhumane they are. One basic question, how can we see the film? <laughs> All right. Oh, goodness gracious. I mean, the thing is that right now, it's, you know, it's at festivals and organizations have been renting it. So if the NAACP uh, wants to see it in New London, you know, they, they can see it. Or uh, it's been shown at Yale, it's been shown at Harvard in, in the classroom, uh, it's been shown at Dartmouth, and, and Tammy has gone to some of these screenings. Uh, and in other words, right now you have to be an organization. I'm about to make a deal with a distributor, oh, so that distributor then will take it to the Netflixes and the Amazons and see what they can do. So um, that, that's the status right now. This is, you know, the way this film distribution works. Right. Well, listen, thank you. Unfortunately, all. I do know the way it works. <laughs> right. Thank you, Tammy, and thank you, thank David. Thank you, this Yes. Great. Fascinating. That was Tamara Lanier and David Grubin talking about the documentary Free Renty, Lanier versus Harvard. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>